You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Sinusitis can be debilitating. When frontal sinus disease is refractory to medical management, what types of surgery should we consider? Joining us to discuss surgical procedures for complex frontal sinus disease is Dr. James Palmer, Associate Professor and Director of the Division of Rhinology in the Department of Otorhinolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Penn Medicine. Dr. Palmer, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I'm an internist, and I treat a lot of sinusitis. I'm not sure what is defined as complex frontal sinus disease. What is that, and how does it differentiate itself from other types of sinusitis? Well, you probably want to start out by thinking about sinusitis in general. Mm -hmm. And sinusitis can be divided into acute and chronic. And acute is the same symptoms as chronic, pressure, pain, and headache, nasal drainage, fullness, feeling, congestion, decreased sense of smell. But acute is symptoms that are less than four weeks and chronic is more than 12 weeks. Mm-hmm. Once you start thinking about acute versus chronic disease, then the next step is, well, which sinuses are involved? The majority of sinusitis that we deal with is maxillary or ethmoid sinuses. Mm-hmm. And frontal sinus disease makes things more complex because it has a bony boundary on all sides and comes down to a very tight area where it drains, an area called the frontal recess. Back in the 1900s, it was referred to as the frontal nasal duct because it was thought to be a very thin tube. Hmm. It's really not so much a tube as it is an area of complex cells, and so we refer to it as recess now. The problem is if that recess becomes swollen, the frontal sinus can become blocked. The secretions that would go there are unable to be released, and the frontal sinus is fraught with creating sometimes large complications such as a frontal sinus mucosal or what's called Pott's puffy tumor, which actually isn't a tumor at all, but is a mucopiocele that's eroded through the anterior wall of the frontal sinus. And so you see a big puff ball right over a patient's eye. Mm. Or it can go posteriorly and create a epidural abscess or a subdural abscess. So the frontal sinus really is a unique situation because of its anatomy and the juxtaposition to other structures. Yes. And so because of that, interestingly enough, we still treat it the same way Mm -hmm. as regular sinusitis, which is medical therapy first, combination of appropriate antibiotics, oral, sometimes even IV steroids, and decongestants. And a lot of times that will shrink the blockage and allow the frontal sinus to drain properly, and then that will take care of the issue. However, in some situations that won't be successful, and then that's when you need to start talking about surgery for the frontal sinus. And the reason why the frontal sinus, it's fair to say that it's a complex surgery, is is that it's a very difficult area to access through the nose. In fact, until about a decade, two decades ago, it was very rare to have people draining the frontal sinus by going through the nose. And there's a whole host of surgeries coming anteriorly where you'd make an incision behind the scalp, roll down the scalp, and then go through the bone directly in front of the sinus. Obviously, that was the type of those surgeries had patients in the hospital for three to five days mm-hmm. and were associated with a lot of pain and quite a bit of morbidity. While the approaches now that we would prefer to use are endoscopic, going through the nose, opening up the frontal recess from below, and draining things into the nose. If we can use that route, you'll find patients are able to go home the same day, immediate relief from their problems, and even more importantly, do very well 
for long periods of time after. That's very interesting. And I imagine this ability has been made possible because of advances in equipment? Yes. So when you start thinking about endoscopic sinus surgery, first step was the endoscopes that existed. And interestingly enough, they were discovered and created from H.H. Hopkins' work, what he won a Nobel Prize for, and really didn't get started in use until after World War II. But even so, we usually think of endoscopes being first used in urology and OBGYN. Mm-hmm. And they made their way to otolaryngology in the mid and late 80s. And then we started using them not just to look in the nose for diagnosis, but actually to do surgery with them. And as the endoscopes have gotten better, the video machines have gotten better, the hand instruments have gotten better, there's been a large advance called image-guided surgery where you perform a CT scan prior to surgery that's fed into a computer, and then using similar techniques to global positioning technology, you can put a probe inside the nose and see where you are in three dimensions on the CAT scan. Mm. And all those things together, along with special powered instruments such as drills and what we call microdebreeders, which are cutting instruments, it's allowed us to work in this very small hole. The width of the front and nasal recess, the whole recess, once opened up completely, is about three to five millimeters in diameter at most. Mm -hmm. And all of that's closed by bony blockages. So the actual drainage pathway of a frontal sinus in an unoperated person can be as little as a millimeter. Why? So very, very small areas and very delicate surgery, it sounds like. Well, at times it is, certainly. And so really, when you think about the big picture of all frontal sinus disease, it can be dropped into three large categories, one being infectious and inflammatory, one being tumors, and then the last being frontal sinus trauma. Frontal sinus trauma, really, you don't need to do any surgery for it unless there is some sort of anatomic abnormality associated. To be blunt, someone gets hit in the forehead and they have a dent now. Mm -hmm. And that is actually oftentimes best treated in an open approach. However, we're able to even do, fix those endoscopically to some extent. Hmm. The second category, which is frontal sinus tumors, uh, fortunately there aren't a large number of them, but those oftentimes require an open surgery as well, and sometimes we can do them endoscopically. The third category, which is infectious and inflammatory, that's the one that we were first successful using endoscopic work to go up through the nose, clear out all the cells of the ethmoid cavity, identify the cells of the frontal recess, remove them, resect them, open up the frontal science itself, and basically suction out the pus that's blocked up there. And that would provide immediate improvement in headaches. So where frontal sinus surgery gets complex quickly is if the basic endoscopic drainage is not successful, Mm, then mm -hmm. you need to start thinking about ways to open up the frontal recess so that it will drain into the nose well and provide for long-term drainage and health. So if there's a tumor present in that area, obviously you have to be able to remove the tumor also. Mm -hmm. So in terms of surgical procedures for frontal sinus disease, we end up having to think about each patient individually, taking a look at whether we can drain them endoscopically or not, and then look at the next step, which is to combine older procedures, the open procedures, with the newer procedures, the endoscopic procedures, to create more or less a hybrid procedure that gets the best result for the patient.
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining me to discuss surgical procedures for complex frontal sinus disease is Dr. James Palmer, Associate Professor and Director of the Division of Rhinology in the Department of Otorhinolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery at Penn Medicine. Dr. Palmer, before you would entertain the simple drainage procedure, what period of time do you like to see antibiotics and anti-inflammatories like steroids on board before it becomes appropriate? It's a slightly variable length of time. It's a good question because there's actually a large amount of controversy over this. I personally would like to see someone, if they have chronic sinusitis symptoms, so that's people who've had symptoms for quite some time, say three months or more, I'd like to see them on antibiotics for at least three weeks and oral steroids, usually prednisone, and a regimen of approximately 60 for three days, 40 for three days, 20 for three days, and then 10 for three days, with also some sort of afrin use or some type of decongestant. If that's not successful, then I will get a CAT scan usually I end up getting a second CAT scan because I need to be able to do their surgery with image-guided surgery. And then I start thinking about the surgery that I'm going to need to do for them. The next question to ask is what percentage of patients resolve under medical treatment only? And if they truly have frontal sinus disease, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 50-50. If they've never had surgery before, and they have frontal sinus disease, about half of those patients will resolve under an aggressive medical therapy run. And about half simply won't be any better. And they'll still be suffering from a headache, over the eye, drainage, congestion, and so on. And when you discuss the image-guided surgery, is that anything akin to the robotic type of surgery that we hear in prostate cancer procedures? It's not. It's actually a different world, but will probably be combined with the robot at some point. So what's so interesting about robotic surgery is is that it replaces the surgeon's hands with more delicate, steadier instruments in a way. In this situation, the robotic instruments have not gotten small enough to be able to work in the frontal recess region. Ah, okay. Uh, We're hoping that we'll continue to advance with the robot and make all the instrumentation smaller and be able to use it at the skull base and the frontal recess. But currently, we just can't quite get to the spot we want to be. And then something that I think about, again, as an internist, and forgive me if this is somewhat ignorant, complications. I often fear that there'll be these areas are so small, there'll be some scar tissue, so you replace one problem with a different one. What kind of complications do you see? It's a good question. One that is feared by surgeons as well. In some ways, though, you've got to realize that doing nothing creates a potential whole host of complications, too. Good point. So Absolutely. if you don't drain that frontal sinus, there's a possibility of epidural abscess, subdural abscess, and pots puffy tumor. That said, and like with all surgeries, complications rates are somewhat due to surgeon experience, surgeon equipment. But even so, the biggest is, is that when you're trying to work with an angled scope. So to work up into the frontal recess, you need to use a scope that's on about a 45 to 70 degree angle. So that large angle, and the instruments are at large angles, means you're probably 10 to 15 centimeters of working distance from where the actual tip of your instrument is performing the procedure and you're seeing it at a distance with the endoscope. Wow. So things that you can 
unfortunately get into. You're right near the orbit, so there's a risk of blindness or double vision from damaging the medial rectus muscle. There's a risk of a CSF leak. So the cerebral spinal fluid is held back behind the dura, right behind the back wall, the frontal recess of that bone. The roof of the ethmoid bone is very thin, say a millimeter in thickness in some areas along the cribriform plate, even thinner. Hmm. So there's a good-sized risk of a CSF leak. And then, of course, what you alluded to, which is failure of the surgery to be successful. Some authors would say as much as 10% of the time, the frontal recess will, once opened and suction-free of disease, will then scar down and close off again. So the other complications rates, orbit and uh, CSF leak, are probably 1% or less at this point. So very infrequent, even though you're in a very delicate area with very thin structures. That's impressive. Yes. And uh, fortunately, a large reason why the complication rates have decreased is because we've gotten better and better technology. Is there any development now of any type of prosthesis or some other technique to try to lessen the rate where it does scar over and the drainage does not last? There have been a lot of people working on that. And over the years, people put frontal sinus stents into the frontal sinus, which is basically, there's many ways to put stents in there. People used to use T-tubes similar to a biliary stent, taking different pieces of silastic and slipping it up there and other shapes of tubes. The problem in the past is is that people would put a stent in there and leave it for six weeks to six months. Mm -hmm. And those stents would become covered with biofilms and have inflammation, and then when the stent came out, the sinus would seal over. So there's new ranges of stents appearing. I personally stent every frontal sinus I do, but I remove it within two weeks since we found that biofilms were forming on them longer than that. Mm -hmm. And so that's helped my success rate. Another technology that's going to be coming out is drug-eluting stents. So in the same way in the cardiac world where you'd put a stent in a vessel and have it elute drug, well, we'd be able to put a stent into the frontal sinus and have it elute drug. The first drug we'll probably be looking at or that I know of is mometazone, which is a steroid, which makes a lot of sense that Mm -hmm. eluting a steroid should decrease the amount of inflammation in the area. Well, Dr. Palmer, thank you so much for being our guest this week on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. A very interesting and complete discussion of the surgical options for complex frontal sinus disease. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.